hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Conversations of the Way. My name is Carlos. The last few episodes have taken us through an incredible journey of faith and redemption through the eyes of Ruth and Rahab. We learned that these two women were not initially part of God's chosen people. They were also considered undesirables because both were from forbidden tribes and the other was a prostitute. Double whammy for Rahab. But by God's grace and mercy, they ended up being part of the lineage of the Messiah. If you haven't listened to the last few episodes, please do so. This way you can receive the full understanding. Before Ruth, there was Rahab. But before Rahab, there was Tamar. The story of Tamar is just as interesting as well. I'm going to break down the story for you, but let me give you some context. The story of Tamar is just one chapter in Genesis, chapter 38. But before we start this chapter, we start seeing the developing of the story of Joseph. I'll touch up on this a little bit so we can refresh our memory. Joseph was one of the twelve sons of Jacob, or as he was named later by God, Israel. Joseph had a dream, and because of this dream, his brothers got jealous, sold him off, and ended up in Egypt. I mention this because chapter 38 doesn't seem to fit completely in the story of Joshua. It's really all about Joshua from chapter 37 to chapter 50, the end of the book of Genesis. It seems like the author wanted to highlight this specific event. I don't see it fitting to the narrative of Joshua, but as we know, it does fit into the greatest story of it all, as we have seen in the last episodes. Okay, so now let me give you a breakdown of the story of Tamar. After the sale of Joseph by his brothers, Judah leaves his brothers and goes to the land of Canaan. While in Canaan, he takes on a Canaanite wife. At this point, I don't think that God had explicitly prohibited Israelites to mix with Canaanites. That didn't come into Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 3 through Moses. But just because he didn't write it on a tablet, that doesn't mean that it was allowed. Think about it. Our parents gave us a bunch of do's and don'ts. If they say that you're not allowed to steal from someone's home, does that mean that you can steal from a grocery store? Of course not. It's common sense, right? Well, in Genesis chapter 24, verse 1 through 4, Abraham forbade Isaac to take a Canaanite wife. This pleased God as we see later in, in the chapter. Later in chapter 27, Isaac takes the same advice he was given by his father Abraham and gives it to Jacob, who will end up having a son named Judah. Now, I can't remember if Jacob told his sons to include Judah to not marry Canaanite women, but I think it's fair to think that he did so. But regardless, Judah grew up being told that Canaanites are not to be dealt with, and yet he still married one. From this Canaanite marriage, he had three boys. And it doesn't say specifically, but one can conclude that he found for his oldest son a Canaanite woman for marriage, a woman called Tamar. His oldest son wasn't a good dude. The scriptures do not elaborate why, but it does state that God was not pleased with him. And just as a bonus to add more flavor to the story, the name Tamar can mean palm tree, source of food, shade, or life. And her first husband, Ur, his name spelled backwards means evil. So, God gets rid of Ur because of his wickedness and Tamar is now a widow. Judah the father does right in God's eyes and gives his second son to Tamar for marriage. 
Before I continue with the story, I'm going to pause here and try to explain what appears to be a weird event where the brother takes on the wife of the dead brother. I say try because I need to gain more understanding of this as we are far removed from this culture and time. In verse 8, Judah says to his son Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. End quote. It was important for this culture of this time to carry on the name. It may not be as important in our Western culture where we place more importance on other things, things that collect dust and rust, but in Eastern cultures, this is extremely important, as it should be. The West doesn't always know best. Okay, so there's one. Another would be inheritance. One of the best ways to increase wealth is through generational wealth. In other words, you leave an inheritance to your children or grandchildren, and then they use that wealth for growth. Then those grandkids rinse and repeat, and with time, you have generational growth. I'm sure if you think hard enough, you can think of a few connected families in wealthy countries where this is so. And I'll give you one more. Back then, they lived in a patriarchal society, just like they still do in Eastern cultures today. In the West, that has been going on a downward slope for a long time, and the meaning of that, of that is now but a shadow of what it used to be. Today, women are protected by the courts, insurance, and a capitalist woman-accepted market. Women do not have to worry about financial stability as much as before. It comes with a trade-off, but at least that is not much of a concern for some. But in those times, they did not have any of this, so measures were put in place to ensure that women were protected. A widowed woman was not as pleasing for a young man wanting to start a family of his own. This allowed a woman to be not only taken care of financially, but also she now has at least one child to take care of her into her old age. I would like to also add that eventually this came to be a written commandment given by God to his people, as stated in Deuteronomy chapter 25, starting on verse 5. I think this can be a hard concept for our society to grasp. I hope that I was at least able to give you enough info to where if you want to study further, you can. Now, it may seem that we went off course, but I didn't want to leave you hanging with a lingering thought of, what did I just read? So back to the story. Tamar loses her first husband. She's on her second husband. And this dude does a no-no, and God takes care of him. Now, she's a widow times two. If you were Judah the father, what would be coming across your mind right now? What would you be saying? Man, this woman whose name can mean live has taken the life of two of my kids. I only got one left. She is the definition of a black widow. Judah is not about to risk the life of his third child, but he has to. I'm going to do another quick pause here. We have come to understand that the righteous law of God came through Moses. God gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it to his people. Moses just didn't make it up. But this is before Moses. But it is understood that it is the right thing to do. Just like you don't need to see a 20 mile per hour limit sign in a neighborhood to know that you should not be driving at 50 miles per hour. God wrote it down so people would not forget it and to be passed on from generation to generation. So, Judah does the unrighteous thing and tells Tamara to go back to her father's house and when his youngest is old enough, he would give him to her. The next half of the story feels like it comes out of a soap opera. 
Judah's wife dies, and after grieving for some time, he goes to get his sheep sheared with a buddy of his. Tamar then gives the 411 that Judah would be in town and takes on a dramatic action when she sees the youngest son is already grown up. Tamar takes off her widow's garments and puts on different clothing that consists of a veil to cover herself up. This made her look like she was a type of prostitute. Judah finally encounters her. Not knowing it was her, it makes a proposition so he can sleep with her. The payment would be to give her a young goat from his flock. But Tamar had a scheme in place. She agreed, but she wanted something for him while she waited for the goat. Judah then offers his signet, cord, and staff as a pledge. After the deed was done, she goes back to put in all her widow's garments. Later, Judah goes on and sends the goat with his buddy as a payment and to get the stuff he pledged back. But Tamar is nowhere to be found. Judah recognizes that if he keeps asking for the so-called cult prostitute, then people will know what he did and be embarrassed. At this point, you may be thinking that what Tamar had done was wrong and shady, and I would agree. But later in the story, you will see that what Judah says about this. Three months later, Judah is told that Tamar is pregnant. Judah sees this as an immoral act and calls to burn her. But this is where Tamar outsmarts him. She sends him the signet, cord, and staff and tells him that she is pregnant by the man who these items belong to. His items. I can see Judah turning different shades at this time. But he acknowledges and states in verse 26, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. End quote. Now, it may seem like Judah could have said those things were not his, but what I think is that he could have not because these things pointed back to him somehow, especially the signet. Signets have been around for a very long time. And they were a way to identify a person through many avenues to include legal paperwork. Signets were typically carved out with a name or family crest. So, it would be hard for Judah to deny this. And you know which story this reminds me of as well? The story of Jesus and the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. If you remember, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to condemn the woman so she could be stoned. Then he started writing down something on the ground. But the scriptures do not say what. Then on verse 8, he says a famous line, which I think most of us have heard. Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. End quote. Then he started writing on the ground once again. The Pharisees walk away. Then Jesus asked the adulterers in verse 10. Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? End quote. She responds with a no. And he tells her not to sin again. Now, the Pharisees didn't just walk away because the Messiah called them out on their sins. Even if they were sinning in parts of their lives, it would have to be proven for them to be condemned. And that's the point. You see, there is a law and instruction about this. In Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, it states, quote, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. End quote. So you see, it takes two to tango. So, 
what I think is just my opinion, that maybe the first time when Jesus wrote on the ground, he wrote down something about Tamara. Maybe just her name. And he did so so that the Pharisees could remember the story of their forefathers and what Judah did. And the second time he wrote on the ground, it may have been the Leviticus verse. Just my opinion, but it reminded me of the story. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is how I have conversations. I go one way and it reminds me of something else, but I always try to come back to the main topic. So the last verse is about Tamar uh, having her twins. It is a famous story of, of one twin putting out his hand and a scarlet thread tied on his hand to acknowledge that he was the first and oldest, which is of great importance as he would be the firstborn, and that comes with privileges. But he then drew his hand back, and the other child, who was named Paras, took advantage of this and came out first. I guess if you're not first, you're last. This is of great importance because Perez became part as well of the lineage of the Messiah. And we have gone through the genealogy a few times in the other episodes. So, final thoughts. What a crazy, weird, and uncomfortable story, right? I recommend you read it yourself so you can get the whole feel of it. I hope that I was able to explain to you, at least in some way, why things were done that way in that time and culture. It may not seem correct. But you must place everything in the context of God's word, culture, place, and time. As I was reading the story, I also struggled to find a way to justify what Judah did by not giving his third son to Tamar and trying to justify the trickery of Tamar. But I couldn't. I believe both were on the wrong. Uh, for sure, Judah. It was obvious that the right thing was to give his third son to Tamar. This was approved by God. His first two kids died not because of Tamar, but because of their evil. Judah failed to correctly identify this. Tamar, on the other hand, we can probably say that she was half as bad as Judah, as he even calls her more righteous than him. But not completely righteous. She was getting what was hers, but probably went at it the wrong way. The Heavenly Father saw it fitting that even with so much unrighteousness, he still had grace and mercy and gave Tamar a double portion of blessings by having twins. It's like God recognized that two husbands did her wrong and blessed her accordingly. As we see the genealogy in Matthew, we wonder why add Tamar to it. I mean, the story, like we discussed, is an uncomfortable one. Why would her name and the name of the other women we discussed be highlighted? I personally believe that is to show grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, and eventually, redemption. If you look at the forefathers of Jesus, it is not like he had this perfect family tree. A lot of was going on there that was not good. But the father, even with all these imperfections, he showed us that he keeps his promises. He also has many for us. One promise you can be sure of is that forgiveness and redemption is available to us when we decide to walk the straight and narrow path of the truth, the way, and the life who's the Messiah. Alright guys, that's all I have for you this time. Be blessed.